turn there and read Hebrews 10:32 to 11:7. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And many of your translations may say diligently seek him, which I think is better. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So let's just call this study by faith. And let's take a look at what it means, remember, to endure. That can sort of mean two different things, right? Remember so that you endure, and, and don't forget to endure. Right? Can mean, but I think the strongest part of it is remembrance is key to our endurance. Remembering is key to our enduring. Right? So we're reminded here of what happened to those who set aside the law of Moses. Back in verse 28, we saw anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And remember what God said also in verse 30. He says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will, will judge His people. So remember that, yes. But there's something else to remember. And that's verses 32 to 34. And one of them is, you were enlightened. You were enlightened. And this is why the enlightened here, I think enlightened is used consistently throughout Hebrews. And I think that's why back in chapter, uh, chapter 6 where it says, it's talking about that very strong warning in 4 through 6. And a little before that, the Scripture speaks to those who were enlightened. And some have taken that to mean, well, yeah, they were enlightened, but they didn't have the fullness of light. This is the same enlightened here. And it appears in other places in Hebrews. Okay, And the way that it's used in the context here is the enlightened person is the person that is in Christ. You were enlightened. So that happened. And then you endured hard struggles, sufferings, public shame and affliction, partnering with those who were, even if you weren't. So even if, even if the particular person wasn't, so if, if Brett wasn't suffering but saw that you know, Ken was, 
You joined him in that suffering. And you say you had compassion on the imprisoned. You had compassion. So in, in, in the midst of suffering, not only did they have endurance, they had compassion on people. that You accepted the plundering of your property. Wow. You accepted the plundering of your property. Can you imagine if you were told today, we're going to have a Christian tax because you Christians are wreaking havoc in the world. You're upsetting the public school system. You're telling us not to abort our babies. You're telling us that we should be putting male and female on birth certificates. You're telling us there's only one way to God. So we're going to tax you an additional 60% of your income for all the problems that you're... What do you mean? You're going to lay the job calling my senator. You know, not that it wouldn't be wrong to use the laws that God's given us. But you... But you... He says here that they were... They, they accepted the plundering of their properties. Right? They accepted that. Man. That seems like a tough one. You fully accepted. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your properties. What, you want 60%? Here you go, DC. Take another ten with it, right? That's pretty big, man. They did that. They knew something, right? They knew something based on their enlightenment. They had come to believe something so profound that none of that could mean anything to them, really. The threat of loss just couldn't shake them that much. It was now. And that's why they're being reminded, okay, i got to take you back because you've been through something like this already. So, whatever persecution they were facing at this point, okay, they had endured something probably greater. And, and greater to a certain extent because it happened to them when they were fresh in the faith. Now, we know what it's like to sort of be fresh in the faith. Right? Sort of nothing can stop us. Uh, well, well, that's the case with some people. Some people, when they first come to faith in Christ... It's so new. They feel so clean. They feel so ready. Right? They could take on anything. They bring it on. You know, and I'm, a, I'm here for Christ. I want to be used by Christ. I want to be abused for the sake of being Christ. Whatever, whatever, whatever you want, Lord. And then time goes on. And then what happens is, you know, what happens is what happens. What happens is this is not there yet. <laughs> We're still here. And so all the still here-ness gets to us over a period of time. And they were under real sort of they were suffering. Whatever that was, someone in a sense, there was some cognitive space in their head thinking, jump ship. But they had come to know and believe and place their faith in God so they'd be reminded that they had confidence. They were certain that a particular thing was true, right? They were certain that they had, that, that, um, they had a better possession, if you go back to verse 34, uh, 34b, they had a better possession and an abiding one, one that couldn't be taken away. They knew that. They knew they had something that couldn't be taken away. And that thing that couldn't be taken away was a person. This is always referring to persons. Even though it talks about an enduring city and a city made without hands. It's always about the person of God. Always. Because if it's not, then it can easily be taken away. And then in eleven, uh, chapter 11, I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 11. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then over in 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So, that was their confidence. That was the thing that was true. They, that confidence has a great reward. We're going to see that again in verse 6 of chapter 11. That confidence 
issues forth in a great reward. But now they need to endure once again because the promise still waits fulfillment. It's not here. Okay? They have to endure even as they endured the first time. They've, they've, they've been through this before. They've endured before. Okay? See, enduring is not a one-time thing is the point. Right? We have, to, we have to endure before, during, and after. Right? We have to endure before, we have to endure during, we have to endure after. It, the enduring doesn't stop. It's, that's why Jesus said, He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Right? That's the nature of the Word. Exactly. So it's enduring. We're always enduring. Right? And He says here, the coming one will come. He will not delay. When it is time. Not before and not after. Right? Some of you Lord of the Rings fans remember Gandalf, the great wizard, when, when uh, Frodo Baggins told him he was late. Right? And he says, a wizard is never late. Nor is he early. Right? He arrives precisely when he means to. So it's going to happen. And we've we got to ask ourselves if we believe that sometimes. And so, faith is a lifestyle. This is what we're seeing here. Faith is a lifestyle. And we see them harken back here. He says, my righteous one shall live by faith. He harkens back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Okay? So, he says, the righteous one is also the one who endures. Right? My righteous one shall live by faith. He'll endure. Now, terrible things, if you go back to Habakkuk, were going to happen to the people of God at the hands of the Chaldeans who were a ruthless, grotesque people. And you can go back and read all the wicked things that God said, I'm going to, this is the people I'm going to use to judge my people. And Habakkuk was kind of like, God, I know it's not possible, but if it was possible for you to lose your mind, I would say this is the time because you're going to, I mean, we're, we've messed up and we've done, but you're going you're gonna to use them? Wasn't that a little extreme, God? And uh, you know, God explained what was going on. Um, but they're also that it would come to an end and that Habakkuk was to watch for it and in the meantime God says you to live by faith righteous people live by faith we're going to talk obviously a lot about faith today okay to apostatize by the way doesn't end suffering that's the other confusing thing that we forget and I'm sure that these people forget and I don't think the text necessarily speaks to it but it is a good side point apostatizing certainly would not end suffering we're all going to suffer in this world. Everybody suffers in one way or another. And we think we see people prospering at times and not suffering. You have no idea what goes on in you, even in your co-workers' lives. You don't. You have no idea. I have no idea of what happens privately in people's lives. I don't have access to your mind. You don't have access to mine. And you can thank God for that. Sometimes the suffering is the prosperity. Right? Sometimes the suffering is the... Pro- oh, if I understand what you're saying... They look like they're prospering, but they're suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could say they're prospering as their wealth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes wealth causes you to suffer. It's, it's not a lack of wealth uh-huh. that causes you to suffer all the time. Mm-hmm. So, your definition of suffering is... Yeah. You know, and, and it can be, your, your suffering can be your success if it's yeah. earthly success. Yeah, it can, even if they don't see it. Okay. But I think... I, I, isn't that what we mean? Yeah. So that the people that are succeeding correct. don't really know this stuff. Apart from Christ. Right, right. But, and so I would say yes to that. And I'd also say that even those that are succeeding and having those successes, they're going to suffer in various ways. They just are. And they're going to experience suffering, what, it, what feels like suffering. So everyone, whether, they should, whether it should be a suffering experience or not, everyone experiences suffering. So getting out of the trouble, getting out of the trouble that's coming to them by way of their Christian faith is not going to end suffering. Right? They're always going to suffer somehow. 
I mean, they were still under Roman rule. I mean, they didn't know, but soon to come was the utter destruction of, of, of Jerusalem. Right? Where once again, people would be, would be uh, tempted into cannibalization, right? Which did happen. I mean, they cannibalized one another. When Rome shut them off, there was no food. But you brought... It's interesting, you touched on something there, Brother Mike. <laughs> uh, John Bloom said this over at Desiring God. He said, Exercising faith in scarcity is not easy by any means. Right? Exercising faith in scarcity is not easy by any means. Most of us fear scarcity. Most of us fear scarcity more than prosperity because the threat is clearly seen. But ironically, that's one reason it can be easier to exercise faith in scarcity than in prosperity. Because in, in scarcity, our need is clear and our options are typically few. We feel desperate for God to provide for us and so we are driven to seek Him to exercise our faith. But exercising faith in prosperity is different. It's more complex and deceptive spiritual and psychological environment. It requires that we truly must trust, truly treasure God when we don't feel desperate for His provision. When we feel materially secure, when nothing external is demanding, that we feel urgency. That's, I mean, that's a great. You've been you've been to Haiti. That's a yes. great yep. illustration of the Haitian church versus the American church. Yep. Can can you who, who wrote that? John Bloom, J O N B L O O M. I'll send it to you. Okay, please. Yep. Um, yeah, because just just because we're not lacking in anything, that's a great time. You know, Paul learned how to be. Faithful in both situations. He knew how to prosper. He knew how to be content in, in little. And he knew how to be content in much. But this is a good point. This is a good point. It can be, much, it can be more difficult to be faithful when things are going good and everyone's prospering. Of course, the sovereign hand of God is behind all that. But, but we, do tend to, we do tend to sort of see it that way. When we only think of those that are suffering that way as suffering. I was just uh, reading this past week where someone wrote it this way, that when a Christian faces a, a, a trial or a, a sudden disappointment, a weaker-minded Christian will lose their fervency and love for the Lord as quickly as the sun ev- evaporates the dew on the ground. Hmm. So oftentimes tests and trials especially when they come suddenly and mm-hmm. unexpectedly mm-hmm. for a Christian who's not you know, grounded, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Any one of us, for that matter, we mm-hmm. could be easily swept away. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Even, I, I see non-Christians suffer well. <laughs> yeah. I've seen non-Christians suffer well, not complain. I've seen non-Christians go through cancer, never complain a thing about it. I'm, I'm sure their life, in, in many ways, was a private agony, but they don't take it out on other people they still continue to just be faithful to what they're supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? Um, God has no pleasure in the one who shrinks back and who abandons faith. Right? Just as with God's reward, we'll, uh, we, we know that shows up in 11.6. We'll see God's pleasure too shows up in 11.6. And what does it even mean that God can be pleased? Um, as in other places in the letter, the writer knows that this group doesn't shrink back. That's his point that he says. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not who we are. He, he, so he encourages them. He stirs them up to, to love and good works. Yeah, he does. He gets that. This would get their minds off of themselves and onto others. These, he says, they have faith, and, and so they preserve their souls. Okay, their, their, their faith. It's a lifestyle. It's, and it's, it's a little hurting, but it is a lifestyle. And he's, he's reminding them, look, 
we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith. Because we need that kind of encouragement to remind one another. And it's not just that, you know, faith and sort of blah. So we need a description of what faith is, right? It makes sense after saying that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. A few verses back, he said, or just a verse before that, my righteous one shall live by faith. So this author here is, is a pretty good guy. He's going to go on to describe what faith is. Because faith sounds pretty important, right? My righteous one will live by faith. And we are those who don't shrink back, but we're those who have faith. So we better know what faith is. And I'm going to give a more thorough treatment of faith than these two passages do. Yes. Oh, I don't oh, because these two passages, verse well, I'm sorry, verse 11, 1 in particular, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, there's a lot that can be extrapolated from that that the author sort of doesn't, um, but that is obviously understood. But I want to look a little more tightly at faith. First of all, it says, it's the substance of things hoped for, it's the evidence of things not seen. Now, if you're like me, most of you have thought, that just sounds like such a weird way to say things, right? The substance... <clears throat> What does it mean to be the substance of something hoped for? How is faith the substance of the thing hoped for? Or how is it the evidence of things not seen? The two are very closely related. Um, Maybe nuanced a little bit. I don't think it's an easy thing to wrap your head around. Um, Things hoped for. So, what are are the things hoped for? What what have we seen in Hebrews that, that we're hoping for? And remember what hope means in this context, right? This two types of biblical hope. There's the hope Paul says, I, I hope to see you again on my journey to Spain. All right? And I hope to get to Spain. He doesn't know for sure if he's going to or not because the Lord has not told him that he's going to Spain that we know of in Scripture at all. So he doesn't have that. And then there's the other kind of hope we have that is, is a thing that is absolutely going to happen. And so the way that we anticipate that with expectant sort of joy and looking forward to, that, that's a different kind of hope, right? And, and we, we've talked about this before. How we use the word hope. So, but what we're talking about here, we're not talking about the 50-50, it might happen, it might not happen hope. This isn't the ninth inning with the Red Sox and we're hoping it or whatever, right? That, you know, we get one more run in or, you know. What are some of the things that this book of Hebrews has told us that we can genuinely hope for? Eternal inheritance. Yeah, right. Who said that? So, what are we going to inherit? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's like... When you give an answer, look up at the teacher, articulate, let the teacher know who's talking so that he can tell everyone else that you just said something really great. But, uh, but, but, so yeah, we've got, what else? We talk about, how about the rest? Right? There's a, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We're talking about this great sort of city to come. So that tells me, you know, again, what was the city life to an ancient? That's where everything was happening, right? That was the metropolis of the day. That's where you went to temple. That's where you went, you know, you still kind of went for the things you might not get in the local village. I mean, it, so wow. So it's going to be a holy city. Um, you know, it's, it's a different life altogether. It's a whole new paradigm. I mean, <coughs> everything that we hope for in this life is just but a shadow. And we've learned that the other sort of shadow things that we've seen in Hebrews, we... Uh, and above all, we're going to see the Lord as He actually is. So these are all our hopes, right? So the things hoped for. We hope for life with God in the hereafter. We, we eagerly anticipate life with God as God actually is. Because we still don't fully know that yet. 
We know enough. Faith in the present bears witness to our future hope. Faith is the action. Right? Faith is, you've got to think of faith as action. Faith is not just a thought. We're going to get into this. Faith is the action that can be counted as evidence of things not seen. Now, sadly, we can have that faith in false things. But faith sort of makes contact with something that's out there in the same way that, you know, our sense of smell makes contact with, a, with an external reality and, our, and our, the sense of sound makes contact with an external reality. Faith comes in contact with something that's either out there or that can be true, unfortunately, or false. So, let's just look a little more deeply because we're going to see here in this chapter, by faith, 18 times. That shows up in this one chapter alone. By faith, all kinds of people did all kinds of things. These are all doing things. Right? This isn't by faith people thought. It's by faith people did. Okay? So, faith is a doing thing. Yes? I mean, if you think of it, because of Hebrews chapter 10, verse uh, uh, 4, it talks about uh, faith in the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Faith in a God you've never seen mm-hmm. is mystical mm-hmm. from a world's perspective. So what makes it substantive? Mm-hmm. But the very sufferings and persecutions that are brought about to test, prove that faith mm-hmm. to where actually in reality you do give up your house's with joy, that, yeah. there's substance, some kind of substance in that faith that is shown to the world. That yeah. the world says there's something to yes, this. that is substantive. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. It's substantive, absolutely. Because in, in the second verse, the people of old received their commendation by faith, and that's God's commendation. We'll see that show up in this. God commends people for their faith. So we need to understand, again, each by faith statement is followed by an action in the, in the historical biblical narratives. And Seth's going to cover most of those next week, right? You're on next week. I've got a few. But what, what would you say faith is not? What, faith is not what? Worrying. Yeah, definitely faith is not worrying, right? It's not empirical. Not, not in the sense of, I need something proven uh-huh. to produce faith. I'll give a tentative yes to that. <laughs> How about stagnant? Yeah, yeah, faith is... It, it, but I, I'm not talking about what's the opposite of faith. Okay. I'm talking about what would be a, a bad definition of faith. Wish hoping. Hoping can be. Yeah, it, it can be. Although we've seen biblical hope in the way that we talked about it is part of our faith because we're going to act. Yeah, John. Many people in the world uh, talk about having faith in their faith. Yes. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, right. You know, that, that first faith in yeah. faith is yeah. obviously not. Well, that, and that's important. Why? Why is that important to not have faith in your faith? Because faith is a religion. Because it's... <laughs> no, other than because it's stupid. <laughs> yeah, we need an object, right? Because faith, our own faith is not a very good object to have faith in at times because it does, like these people, wax and wane. So can you imagine these people having faith in their faith? That would be a bummer. Yeah, man. I, I think it just converts it into that 50-50. Yeah, I can, yeah. You know? Yep, absolutely. Um, it's not a blind leap. Okay? What do, you, what do you think of the saying, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Let me give you my point of view, and I think it's a silly statement, and I wish it was never used by Christians ever again. <laughs> but that's me. I think it's a silly statement. I can understand the, the sentiment a little bit, but, you know, why do you think that 
people say that, well, why do you maybe disagree with me? You can disagree just because I say something with, you know, with force doesn't mean I'm right. Yeah, we can't confuse force with... Yes? I've had the argument with somebody at school about, like, creation, mm-hmm. and, and I said to them, I think it takes more faith to believe that everything just happened. Well, now, why does that take more faith? Because we believe that there's a creator, and they believe that everything is just an accident. For, for, for this, everything, like, looking at a cell, for that to be an accident, mm-hmm. that's, that's insane. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I think you're almost there, but I, it, it, it's the object of yeah. faith that really is defining it. Yeah. Faith not connected to an object is yeah. not really definable, so we are all people of faith. Yeah, the, by who our faith is placed in. Yeah. The suggestion is, like, so what they say, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, that's almost like saying, uh, sort of, the less you know for sure, the better your faith is. And I think that's just way wrong. All right, the less the less you have evidence for the the confusing thing to say. The the trouble with saying I don't have enough faith to be an atheist is that sort of assumes the sort of the, the posture is or the point is that well I believe with a lot less than you do or something. You know, it just isn't. It, it's very awkward. Yes. Conviction a, a nebulous conviction mm-hmm. is something that you can't identify. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't. Yeah. I think some of its origin comes from. The equation time plus matter plus chance equals who we are. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. it takes a certain amount of faith to believe yep. in chance and all the other part of the equation. It's almost if people say, and this is why I wanted to tentatively, tentatively <coughs> uh, sort of accommodate what you were saying. It's almost as if the suggestion or the intimation is uh, the, the less there is to sort of prove it, the greater your faith is. And that reduces faith to a clearly intellectual sort of phenomenological, you know, it's it's not a, uh, it's like we need phenomena to attach to it. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's say this. Let's let's take a look at some helpful things. This is a few comments by Alistair McGrath. Called This is from a book called Intellectuals Don't Need God and Other Myths. Great book. And he's got some sort of propositions. Faith is about believing certain things are true. Right? It's a good point. Faith is certainly includes a number of things, but it's certainly about believing that something is true. See, faith requires knowledge or it isn't faith. If there's no knowledge, don't call it faith. Faith requires knowledge. Dallas Willard says, an act of faith in the biblical tradition is always undertaken in an environment of knowledge and is inseparable from it. So knowledge is not the opposite of faith. Okay? By the way, what is the opposite of faith, you suppose? Uncertainty. Doubt? No. No, it is not. It is definitely not doubt. Indifference? Yes. No. Ignorance? No. <laughs> I know you're going to disagree with this, but I'm going to say it's all got to be nuanced, of course, but empiricism. Possibly, a little bit included. Yeah. Unbelief. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Plenty of believers have doubts. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is necessary for any Christian to have. I'll have that a lesson on that someday. If you've never had doubts, I doubt that's true. But <laughs> yeah. The, the trouble with using words like this is that the definition <laughs> of what people think it means goes out of whack. Like people will say, "I don't believe in guns." Huh? 
Well, guns exist. Uh-huh, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? So I don't know what they're actually saying. <laughs> yes. I know. I, no, I understand what you mean. And that's why it's very important to use some of the apologetic tactics to draw people out, right? Draw them out. When people say, I don't believe in guns, so what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean you don't believe in guns? What does that mean? Right? Oh, I'm sorry. Great. Just great. It's like I always use creation as evidence of faith. Always when I'm witnessing and sharing Christ with people. Because creation is so perfect and I don't even know a little, I only know a tiny little bit about it. You know, like how the earth is on an axis and it's spinning perfectly. And our, our seasons and everything. It just points to a creator. Mm-hmm. And then people always come back and be like, ah, I don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, then how do you explain that all this is here then from nothing? Mm-hmm. And, like, are you going to tell me that there was a black hole yeah. with nothing yeah. and it exploded right. and now we have everything? Yeah. So, come on, man. Well, see, in, classi- <laughs> in classical apologetics, that's known as the cosmological argument for the existence of God. It explains right. it right there. It's the and it was actually it was actually fully developed uh, um, uh, in Islamic thought back in the Middle Ages. It was properly construed. I mean, it was it existed before that, but it was put forward in terms of you know proper philosophic terms, in terms of the premise, and you know the conclusions which fall from a premise, and the laws of logic. That was that was fully construed. And, uh, William Lane Craig has done a masterful work with the cosmological argument. So all those things. Yes, uh, I'll get off on that way too easily. Uh, so faith is trust, right? So faith is about believing certain things are true. Faith is about trust, right? So you deem something to be trustworthy. And then faith is entering into the promises, right? Receiving what they have to offer. And he uses the example of penicillin and blood poisoning. Okay? So you got blood poisoning. He believed that penicillin can cure blood poisoning. Okay? He trusts. He believes it's trustworthy. He believes that it's going to work. Now faith is... He said, just as faith links a bottle of penicillin to the cure of blood poisoning, right? So, faith would be taking the penicillin. That's when we really know it's faith. When you take that penicillin. And he says, just as faith links a bottle of penicillin to the cure of blood poisoning, so faith forges a link between the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the tragic human situation in which we find ourselves. Yes? Just definition of terms using trust and faith interchangeably isn't really accurate though right like so trust is really kind of the the resting knowledge that that something is the way that it that it is and faith is the physical action of relying on that so like if you're like a chair yeah we all sat down in a chair mm-hmm. today right like we all trusted that these chairs yes would hold us yes but us sitting in them was yes. us putting our faith in the yes chair. yes kind yes of the, yes Oversimplified. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't think it's oversimplified. Okay. Trust is part of faith. No, I know. But it is not faith. Interchangeably, but one is yeah. action and one is resting. That's right. I, okay. Yes. Okay. And yes, I think that's fine. Uh, I think that's definitely nuanced well enough. I, I think that trust is part of faith. It's a part of the faith process because you're not going to put your faith in something you don't trust. Right. At least you shouldn't. And you shouldn't put your faith in something you don't know. <laughs> Although we do. <laughs> I mean, we being humans. Martin Luther says faith is a wedding ring. Martin Luther. <laughs> Faith is a wedding ring. Christ and the soul become one and hold all things in common. Christ, he says, is full of grace, life, salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them and sin, death, and damnation will be Christ's. 
while grace, life, and salvation will be the souls. That's nice, right? I mean, so most people, although there are some oddball exceptions, and if you do this, I would say you're an oddball, but there are people who get married and keep their money separate. He pays the bills with his money. She does the shopping with her money. They don't have they have separate bank accounts. They might even take separate vacations. Wait, I have my own money. I think that's a little bit polluted, but I'm open to an argument on that. This is new. Okay, so I, I, know, I, I know people that do this. I, I think it's problematic at so many levels, but uh, that could just be my own prejudicial thinking. Irenaeus of Lyons. Who was Irenaeus? And where was Lyons? I don't know where Lyons was, but who was Irenaeus? Early church father. Yeah, yeah, real early church father, right? Like second century church father, 180-ish to you know early third century. I have this on my wall in my office, as well as some other things. Faith is established upon things truly real, that we may that we may believe what really is as it is. And believing what really is as it is, we may always keep our conviction of it firm. What a mouthful, right? What a mouthful that is. So, faith is established upon things truly real. Great. Faith is established upon real things. It's not established on false things, right? If you have faith in something false, it's not a well-established faith. So, faith is established on things truly real. Why? So that we can believe what really is as it actually is. And, And when we believe that way, we can always be sure of it. Because we know the thing, we receive it as it is, we believe it as it is, and then we act as it is. Okay? So knowing that about faith, now apply that understanding of faith as we move forward, and as Seth does next week. Keep that definition, that understanding of faith in mind. Okay? Um, and any time you think of faith. And, and here's a few examples. Here's the first, by faith. By faith, we understand the universe was formed by the Word of God. We don't know how God did it, but he said he did it. And so I think this... I'm not sure. Now, I think this can mean two different ways. We can believe God made it because he said he made it. Or we can believe that God... Or it can mean... Or it can mean and I guess this would... One would sort of encompass the other. We could mean it to understand that God spoke it into existence. And I think sort of the two can go together, right? But we can see it, though, too. Yes. We actually can look at it and marvel at yes. it. Yes. And see it. Yeah, and so that faith, right? By faith, we sort of we believe that and we live that way, right? We live that way. Why? We'll get to that in a minute. Um, we we don't know how God did, but He said He did it. We know that He spoke it. We know that we know uh, philosophy and science all confirm creation ex nihilo, which is creation out of nothing. Okay. Um, we know that from the evidence. Going back to the cosmological argument, which is pretty simple, right? And the, pre- the, the premises are everything which begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, okay? So that's basically known as the Kalam cosmo- cosmological argument, named after Kalam, the medieval Muslim dude. So that's what we know. We know that it, philosophically, we know this. Everything that began to exist has a cause. Something causes everything that ever began. And this, by the way, is when people say, oh, but who created God? You're confusing things. We're not saying anyone created God. What we're saying is, God has always existed. Science confirms that the universe had a beginning. 
Period. This is without question, without refutation. Nobody, nobody on earth disagrees with that. Nobody on earth disagrees that the universe began. Now, some will say, yeah, it was spawned off by another universe or whatever, right? And that just pushes the problem back another step, right? So, so where that universe come from, right? And part of the cosmological argument, this gets beyond what most of us would even be interested, but has to do with how can you know, you, 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 there's no such thing as an, actual, as an actual infinite past in terms of, in time. Right? Then you have to talk about theories of time. And I don't, yeah. The same thing about You'll end up taking psychedelic drugs if you try getting on that. It's the same thing about the future. It's like we always. I remember. I remember, like when you think about God and eternally, mm -hmm. you're always thinking about from now to the future. Yeah. And it's 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 difficult for us sometimes. I think to believe to to concept that it it never mm. began somewhere. Yeah. It always existed. Yep. Back in uh, <coughs> the past. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember thinking about that, and it kind of blew me away. You know what I mean? But like, God is amazing. Yeah. And there, he is. there you go. Now look, now look. So how does that space relate to our lives? Right? We know that God is. We know that God is sort of non-contingent. In other words, He's not dependent upon anything. We know that He was completely happy in Himself. Right, Todd, in the happy land of the Trinity. He was happy long before we came along. Right? He didn't need us. And I don't say that to be. I don't, sound, I don't want that to sound like condescending because we're beyond our own capacity to understand how precious we are to God. We have little idea how precious we are to God. Um, we know that He controls it. We know that He upholds it. We know. And so that's how we live. We live, at least, and a lot of people do, live in, in keeping with that. All right? Believing that. Acting as if it were so. Then we see uh, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. Why is it that Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain? Because he Anybody offered know? a blood sacrifice. <coughs> Wrong answer! <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. Although there are theologians that believe that. There's a lot of theologians, There's a lot of theologians that believe that have taught that, and I think they're dead wrong. Yeah, I agree too. Uh, because the text has nothing to say about that whatsoever. Right. Nothing. It's not an atonement text. It's pre. It's it's pre anything that has anything to do with animal sacrifice for atonement. It has nothing to do with it. Well, yeah, but doesn't God require for the Israelites blood sacrifice? It doesn't matter. Yes, He does. And then Jesus does. But, but that doesn't. Yeah. Without without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But this has nothing to do with an atoning sacrifice. This has nothing to do with atonement. Yes. Yeah, I don't know it. Maybe. I don't think there's an entirely... I don't think we know. I don't think the text gives us any idea except that Cain did not do well. God says that very specifically in the text. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And what's the text telling us here? It's telling us it was by faith, right? So, Cain's offering was not by faith. Whatever that meant in that context, we don't know, would be the way I argue. I know that there are people... Christianity that would say us oh, because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. Okay, uh, there might in, there might be even disagreement among the people that teach in this church, and that that's okay too. But right now I've got center stage, and I'm just letting you know <laughs> what I think the text says and doesn't say. This is not Cain and Abel has nothing to do with atonement. It doesn't even speak about atonement. 
There's no atonement, atonement context. See, the problem is anytime we see blood in Scripture, or anything, every, every time we see an animal killed, we think atonement. And that's so many animals slaughtered in Scripture. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's quite as far as I'll sort of, sort of push that. But not, again, nothing in the text indicates that this is an atoning sacrifice. It just basically says, it just basically says, uh, Cain, the Genesis text says, was not accepted because in his sacrifice he did not do well. Yes. I don't know if this, if this is accurate, but would it have anything to do with the sovereignty of God choosing to give faith to Abel and not faith to Cain? No. See, I'll, t- I'll tell you why that's a problem. Why I struggle with that. <laughs> God is genuinely holding this person accountable. He's genuinely holding Cain. And we have, the thing we have to be careful about with election and predestination and God's sovereignty, the great danger is we see God sort of disciplining or correcting or saying things to people that He made them that way to be in the first place. As if there's no accountability on their part at all. And so I think that if we just reduce it to that, I think that's a little too minimalistic. I think that that just removes the whole sense of relationship with God. It removes the whole relationship thing to me. Um, it removes that relational component that uh, even though our wills are destroyed in a sense, our volition and, and acting and, and sort of doing those necessary things that show that we love God. You know. So I guess you know, in a sense, maybe in the big picture, um, but I'm not sure. I can't say. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Cain got his act together. Right. And someday came to faith. I, I don't think the scripture necessarily tells us. I don't. It tells us right here. He certainly wasn't. God, in fact, God told him, "Sin is crouching at your door, because you're not living a life of faith." So whatever he brought to God, he might have just been sort of checking the box. You know, there's a million things in life where we all just sort of check the box. Our heart's not in it. <laughs> I got that from one of my coworkers. She's always saying that. Yeah, I see. Such and such check the box on that one, huh? Right. So, but. I just don't think uh, Bev said. And I was waiting for someone to say that, Bev. You just have to be the right one. I had the whole ant wrong answer thing lined up, a whole Jeopardy thing, right? Um, that's where that came from, by right? Could, Jeopardy. It could also be uh, the heart of Cain. He probably didn't even yeah. want to give a sacrifice. I, well, I think that's exactly right. Where, where Abel I, gave I think that's probably as, as likely as anything. Yeah. That's what God said. You didn't do well, and He said sin is crouching at your door to be careful. So right. sin was going to have dominion over him. Yeah. Because he just wouldn't. For whatever reason, he didn't submit to God in, in any real meaningful way. Uh, Wally, then. Do you think that, uh, going along with what Beth said, do you think that uh, Cain was giving a gift out of duty and uh, Abel was giving it out of love? Yeah, I, I think that's what I sort of meant by checking the box. I think that's kind of what uh, Bev is getting at. I think it's, um, you know, it's the difference between. You know, you might be wanting to give a gift. Let's <laughs> I'm going to be careful here. <laughs> but the floral shops and the supermarkets get a lot of their money off of box checkers. Right? So on Valentine's Day morning, my husband stops there on the way home from work and grabs a flower. Very, doesn't plan anything. You know, just very last minute if he's going to it all. Right? The very last minute just grabs that I could be wrong. There could be other things that happen in life, right? So let's let's allow that grace there, right? There could have been whatever life is terrible, there's suffering, whatever's going on, and 
And this guy happens to have a... I had a great story by Paul David Tripp. I'm doing it. My wife and I are doing his marriage seminar thing, which is great. And, um, and he makes the point that when he was uh, young and they didn't have any money, he had a dollar and a quarter. And every night, they had one night a week that was set aside for a date. And, and he asked the chocolatier if they would give him just one truffle, sell him one truffle, because all he had was a buck and a quarter. And they said yes. And then he asked if they would cut it in half for him. And the two of them sat down and ate it together, right? I was like... Isn't that a sweet ooey story? And so, but he thought about it, you know, he planned ahead, right? So, yes, those can be great places, like a last minute thing or whatever, but I, I do think I've seen a lot of guys coming out of Big Y <laughs> on momentous occasions. And I don't want to be unkind. I mean, it, it just looks weird, right? It looks like box checking. So, there's a difference between that and the guy that sort of has planned it ahead of time and left a little post-it note for his wife in the car, you know, thinking about you this morning, and then puts another little note in her lunch, right? And then he calls her up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and, and just, you know, rips off a little poem to her or something. Right? you see the difference? Yeah. All right. So, uh, thanks for letting me be me, Beth. I appreciate that. <laughs> but that faith still speaks to the audience of this letter, obviously, right? What an example. So, even though we don't know a great a deal about it, the first time we see God rejecting an offering, the difference between the two is Cain did not do well in the offering. Faith is doing. Cain did not do well. Right? Okay. By faith, Enoch was translated. He never died. Right? God was pleased with him. Right? His faith pleased God. And that's all we know about Enoch. Right? But, but what a way to be remembered. That's all we know about him. It would be nice to leave this earth and have no one remember anything about us except that we please God. Right? Not, you know, oh, why wow, God wrote ten books or, you know, He pastored thousands, led thousands to Christ, did this and that, or sort of man-centered perspective. God was pleased with Him. Oh, wouldn't you like to have God write that with His finger on your tombstone? Just erase the here lies thus and such and the days you were alive and the days you just erased it all and just writes I was pleased with oh man not bad uh, Jude gives us some information about Enoch I'll be talking about Jude upstairs next week but Enoch prophesied right God had to have told Enoch that God was coming with his holy ones to execute judgment right Enoch must have lived faithfully as a prophet to some extent he believed God he walked with God like other prophets did he did what God told him to do Okay? He believed God. He, he prophesied. Enoch will tell us about that next... Uh, Jude mentions that next week. Then in verse 6 we see, without faith it is impossible to please God. Right? Without faith we cannot please God. Why? So I wanted to ask you that. Um, why is it impossible to please God without faith? Knowing what we know about faith. It's because it's so... Rela- yes? Well, if it requires knowledge and trust and you have no faith and you don't trust God or you don't care to know it. Yeah, it definitely reveals something about you, doesn't it? It tells you, it tells you that much. It tells you you don't really know God. And if you Tell- go into the piece of faith is action, mm-hmm. all the things that you do with your life, if it's yeah. not pointing away from Him, then yeah. you're not pleasing Him. Yeah, exactly. 
and so what you're what you're each sort of saying in, in different ways or, or in, including in what you're saying is it shows no relationship there there's nothing relational going on how do we relate to God right as he's revealed himself God is approached by faith right living like you know God rewards those who some translations say diligently seek him right Who's, what translations is the NASB that must be King James probably. yeah does anyone else have diligently is there, is there any adjective before the yeah. verb there or an adverb that might help earnestly seek him okay so that's built into this so whatever Greek word that is that Greek word means earnestly seek right or diligently seek how do you diligently seek anything how do you earnestly seek anything put everything you got into it yeah yeah right you really you really think it through it means something to you it becomes uh, more than just an external thing it's, it becomes internal uh it becomes extremely important you need to know so those that come to God the scripture says in verse 6 without faith it's impossible for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists isn't that interesting and doesn't that kind of make you ask well who would draw near to God if they didn't believe he exists but the two go together not just believing he exists and all that little conjunction right and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him do you believe that and I think that's a meditation verse too. I think that's a verse that we can meditate on. That God diligently rewards rewards those who diligently seek Him. Rewards them with what? Eternal life. Yeah. yeah. You can call it eternal life, but make it a little more personal. Yeah. Right? Um... He brings us into, and this is where we're studying, right? This is where we'll be going some more on Tuesday nights as well. God takes us into His triune being. We're, we're welcomed into the, the pre-existent triune life of God. And the reason why that maybe sometimes doesn't sound like such a big deal is we haven't thought Trinitarian enough. There's something that's been going on with God for all eternity. An incredible love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that relationship is then exemplified, shown, put out in creation. And to those that are born again, to those that Christ takes Himself, we're taking into the life of God. We're we're in an environment of an immense interpersonal love and relationship that we could never have gotten into if He hadn't come and taken us into. So we need to understand as we grow in faith, what the life of God is about. What is life like? And the reason why I refer to the happy land of the Trinity is that's a chapter in the book that uh, I read in Todd, Todd's reading as well. It's called The Deep Things of God. It's the Trinity. The Deep Things of God. What, it mean? what does it mean that God loves His Son? What does that mean? I used to think I wasn't real close with my dad. right? So I just didn't have a close emotional relationship. And for a lot of people, they might have a difficult time Understanding the fatherhood of God because of the failure of earthly fathers to be good earthly fathers and earthly mothers to be good earthly mothers. <clears throat> but then it struck me as I was thinking about Trinitarian that I'm looking at it the wrong way. I'm looking at God saying, what do I see in earthly fathers and how much better does God do it? And bada bang. That's what the fatherhood of God is like. No, that's wrong. Because every father sins and falls short. There's no way 
we don't have a perfection comparison but what we can look like to see how fatherhood should be modeled is the way God the Father relates to God the Son that's where we see fatherhood and sonship modeled that's what fatherhood and sonship should look like right and so God takes us into that life of his own he takes us into his very into his very being and that's a lot to think about and yeah there's a lot of mystery to it but he's given us a lot right that we can chew on there is a lot of good stuff and then finally Noah built an ark in reverent fear which can only come by faith you know I mean nothing Noah had seen to that point gave reason to believe that a great big flood was going to come whether it was a, you know some God says that my spirit will not always strive with men but 120 years now some people believe that means the flood would come 120 years from when the commission was given to build the ark or that man is no longer going to live beyond 120 years um, so there's both of those up there I don't, I don't really sort of care which one you, maybe you do uh, and that's cool but in any case he had no reason to believe that that was going to happen he had never seen anything like that I mean we can see tornadoes he had never seen anything like this right but he knew certain things about God see this is the difference God created all things he knew that uh, Noah was blameless the text says so that means he, he lived in faith he lived in a certain level of he knew some things about God he found God to be trustworthy and he lived as if that were so he lived that reality right uh, the antediluvians then so before the flood the people that lived before the flood they knew about righteousness we don't have any revelation up to this point really as to how they knew right and wrong other than that they knew right and wrong Genesis 6, Genesis 6 tells us they knew about righteousness they knew good and evil they had to have in order for Noah to be considered blameless God told Noah he would make a covenant with him Noah believed he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Our, our stepping into that drenches us with it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're walking right into a sea of, of God, a sea of grace. You, faith immediately places us in, in the Godhead. And that's the, in, in, not in the Godhead, but in the, the relational aspects of God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We're there. We're in the life of God, of Him. You are in Christ Jesus, the scripture says. We are in, that was one of Paul's favorite sayings, we are in Christ. We're in Christ. There's so much in that. I don't even know what that means sometimes. It doesn't mean that I am in Christ, or that Christ is in me. Meditate on those things. Grow your faith. And then, next week, Seth is going to give a lot more examples of people who knew something about God, and all kinds of different ways that they acted, and all the ways that they considered God trustworthy and they took that final crucial step of entering into that relationship with God they acted in a manner consistent with their beliefs so not to oversimplify it but let's just end with this faith can be considered knowledge plus belief plus action that's just a little simplification but knowledge faith absolutely requires knowledge that's why I say it takes more faith to be an atheist I don't like right because it, that, that statement presumes we don't have to know certain things. And you're right. The problem is, Todd, right, that people think that the only way that we can know something is through the empirical method, right? Through hearing, seeing, touching, feeling, smelling. That there's no knowledge outside of the uh, empirical, and that's called empiricism. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's crazy because there's no sense we have that could tell us that. Mm-hmm. 
It's a self-refuting statement, right? What, what empirical sense do we have that tells us that the only way we can know things is by knowing them through the five senses? That's a philosophical statement, right? That's a statement of philosophy. That's not a, just like love. That's not something that can you can experience it. You can experience what love is. You can experience knowledge, but all these things are non-empirical, right? So, um, faith plus belief plus action, and we're good to go. And so, we'll have Rob pray for us. Would you? But I pray that you send us off in faith that our object might be you in everything. And we might go upstairs in the sense of being in the Trinity, in, in the relationship. We might uh, glory in it and revel in it and praise you in it. Send us upstairs that we might uh, do all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.